May I speak in the name of God, who is lover, beloved, and love-sharer. Amen. Last Thursday, in Episcopal 101, we began to study the Bible. And in everyday speech, we refer to the Bible as a book. So each year it comes as a surprise to many that the Greek word that we get our word Bible from doesn't mean book at all. It means library. And so the Bible is more properly a library of books within a single binding. And all the books of the Bible address the core theme of our human experience of God. And I'm fond of the comment that everything in the Bible is true, and some of it actually happened. (laughs) Because the Bible expresses truth, not because it's the dictated word of God, but because its truth speaks directly and emerges out of the difficult and painful human struggle of being in relationship with God. Now, as we know, not everything in the Bible agrees with everything else in the Bible, and this confuses modern people because we are conditioned by our scientific view of language And it raises questions for us which are difficult to find answers to because the questions such as, so what do I believe and what don't I believe? What is true? What is not true? These are questions that the text of Scripture can't answer. They're modern questions. And some Christians solve the dilemma by casting doubt aside and insisting that everything agrees with everything else under the cover of it being God's divinely dictated word. And other Christians explain the Bible away as a series of interesting myths, a product of pre-scientific culture, having as much value as Greek mythology as a practical guide for living life in the 21st century. And as Episcopalians... Our approach to the Bible has been strongly influenced by our understanding that our relationship with God does not exist in a timeless vacuum. Christianity, like Judaism, is a historical religion, meaning that the relationship with God is shaped by the events in time and space. God communicates with us through becoming involved in the events not only of our history, but in the day-to-day events of our ordinary lives. And the reason for the huge variance between the spiritual writings contained in the Bible is that each book is the product of a context a context in which the human exploration of relationship with God is conditioned by a particular social, political, and economic set of circumstances. And rather than timeless, 
Scripture is contextual, and therein lies its value and its truth. And the problem that we have with context is that it is always relative, and this is one of the laws of the universe that we human beings have to struggle with. Context allows for a discovery as well as a concealing of God. And our context allows us to discover important elements in our relationship with God that are new because they emerge out of the particular context of the 21st century. And yet our context also hides aspects of God from us. And that is why we need the biblical record. It communicates tradition to us. As the living past, tradition is the church's present interpretation. And tradition works to keep experience and perspective on God wider than our own context might otherwise allow. Yet the task in each generation is to sit in the tension of having to interpret the tradition of the living past in a way that equips us to meet the challenges we face in our lives in 21st century America. And each Sunday, through the lectionary, we're given a particular set of readings. We don't choose these readings And that means that they can become a vehicle through which God speaks to us about the things that God wishes for us to be in conversation about and not those things that we would prefer to be in conversation with ourselves about. And through hearing how context shapes the different ways that the people of God, Hebrew as well as Christian, have grappled with their experience of relationship with God, through our Sunday readings we are invited to do likewise. To grapple with the demands of being in relationship with God in our own time and place. Our Old Testament lesson this morning from the book of Job, amazingly short passage, gives us a very clear example of what that struggle with the relationship with God looks like in a particular time and place. In Job's culture, there was a conventional sense of of God as a rather capricious giver and taker who toyed and played with human fate to amuse himself. And Job refuses to accept this, and he challenges God. He challenges God to give an account. Job moves beyond the God of easy answers and trite explanations to complex problems. 
And he refuses to accept the advice of his friends, who simply remind him of an image of God that says to Job, if disaster befalls you, it's all your fault. So suck it up. And Job breaks out of the straitjacket of the religious and social conditioning of his time. And he uses an element of his context, the Redeemer, to expand his understanding of who God is. Now, we Christians, especially those of us who year by year sing the words of the Messiah over and over again, have a very clear sense of what this word redeemer means. We think it means Jesus, and of course it does to us. But that's not what it meant to Job. The redeemer in Job's culture was a human being who was a guardian, who protected the vulnerable from the worst excesses of economic deprivation. And so Job takes this image of the Redeemer from his culture and he projects it onto God. And he pits two concepts of God against each other. The capricious player and toyer with people and the Redeemer. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and will vindicate me. And in doing so, he is challenging God to give a fuller account of who God is and how Job should expect relationship with God to be. And I'm attracted by this idea of breaking free from the world's social construction of God. Job breaks new ground as he struggles with the challenges of his life. And he moves well beyond the limits of his culture's social imagining of God. And Luke gives us a story in the gospel this morning, which at first seems like a familiar story. Jesus is always getting into rows with the Jewish authorities normally with the Pharisees. But in this story, the Pharisees are actually on Jesus' side. Jesus is in confrontation with the Sadducees. We don't think about the Sadducees very much because they actually disappeared with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because they were the aristocratic and priestly class whose political power centered on the temple and its rituals. And there were significant political and religious tensions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Politically, the Sadducees collaborated with the Roman occupation in order to protect their privileged status and power. The Pharisees were stridently nationalistic. Religiously, the Sadducees and the Pharisees differed about the belief in resurrection. You see, because both the Pharisees and the followers of Jesus shared a belief in resurrection, which at the time of Jesus was a theologically progressive idea. It emerges 
out of a privileging of the prophetic tradition alongside that of the law tradition of the Torah. The Pharisees and the Christians agreed about resurrection. What they didn't agree about was the identity of the Messiah because resurrection is what happens when the Messiah arrives. And the Sadducees, being religiously conservative, held firmly to an interpretation of the Torah that did not allow for theological development. Using the inheritance practices prescribed in the law of Moses, where a widow became an inherited item of property, passing like one piece of property to her husband's brothers on her husband's death, the Sadducees sought to entrap Jesus in a scenario that made the concept of resurrection seem ridiculous. Jesus doesn't argue with them. He just simply says, the laws of this world don't apply in the world to come. And you may deny resurrection if you like, Sadducees. But at the heart of the Torah, Moses speaks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so in any society, there are religious groups who are very happy with the status quo. And they see God as supporting the maintenance of the status quo. And there are other religious groups who hope for God to reverse the injustices of this world in the world to come. And the content of Luke's story is particular to first century Palestine. But the context is the universal struggle between those whose religious perspectives imprison God in the limitations of the status quo, and those like Job, whose religious perspectives challenge the status quo, leading to an understanding of God that breaks free of social and religious constraint. So how does our context shape our relationship with God? The authority of Scripture is to be honored not by the application of the solutions of the past, imposing them on our own experience, but by our engaging in the struggle to expand our picture of God as appropriate for our own time and place. This is what previous generations have always done. And in this period of stewardship renewal, we're called upon to question our social assumptions that the fruits of our labor are attributable to our own efforts and therefore ours to control. When gratitude replaces pride of accomplishment as the source of our reflection on the best use of our resources for the thriving of our community. We are directly challenging the social assumptions of a materialist 
and an unrestrainedly capitalist society. Job expected God to give an account of God's actions. And this is a two-way street. From the relative security and privilege of our own social location, God likewise asks that we give account for our willingness to see or our refusal to remain blind to the expectations of the kingdom of God, which are always emerging into our own time and place. Amen.